Thank you, Josh and Diana. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 in our Bibles here today. What a wonderful song. I hope uh, you were able to, hope it was a blessing to your heart. Um, the thought that uh, God still knows the plan that he has for your life and he is not given up on that, and even you and I, when we fail him, we stumble along the way, or uh, we give in to this temptation of this world, or maybe the, just the trials and tests of this world seem so overwhelming, and sometimes we can't see our way through, um, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and died for us on the cross, he knows the plan he still has for your life and for my life, our lives together. And uh, what a wonderful, wonderful song. Thank you, Harneys, for that. John chapter 7 is where we are. Of course, the Lord Jesus today sits on the right hand of the Father, raised from the dead, um, waiting for that appointed time where he will come back and rule and reign for all of eternity as King of kings and Lord of lords on this earth. Here in our study of the Gospel according to John, uh, we're looking at Jesus' life. He's just about 33 years of age. Uh, here in chapter 7, uh, he's been ministering, preaching, and teaching, and healing on the earth for about three years. And um, he only has six months left to live at this point here in John chapter 7. John, of course, still has 21 chapters all total. We're only in chapter 7, so... Most of the gospel, according to John, has to do with the last six months of Jesus' life here on this earth. So we'll be taking a close look at that. But uh, 33 years of age, here, here he is in, in chapter 7. Back in the, in the beginning of chapter 7, we saw that Jesus walked in Galilee for this, this last year uh, or, or so of his life. He would not walk in Jewry. It says there in verse number 1, because the Jews sought to kill him. And Jewry has the idea of the uh, religious part of Israel, which would have been Jerusalem, the southern uh, part of Israel, Judea. And uh, look at verse number 2. It says, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. That's what was taking place. We'll talk more about that today. We talked about it last week. In verse 3, we, this was interesting, it says, His brethren, Jesus' younger brothers, therefore, said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. And you remember back in chapter 6, there were the people who Jesus had fed, the multitudes that he had fed. Um, they came to him wanting more food. They believed in in what he could do, they were impressed by what he could do, but they did not believe in him as God. And here in chapter 7, we find that Jesus' own brothers, his own siblings, his younger brothers, they were impressed with what Jesus, their older brother, could do. Um, you remember, he had fed the multitudes. He had turned the water into wine. He uh, was healing people on a daily basis. Multitudes of people uh, were impressed by him. And and the younger brothers of Jesus, they were impressed by him too, and they gave him some advice. In verse number four, they, or verse three, they say, go down to Judea, leave Galilee, this backward area, this northern part of Israel, go down to Jerusalem. Verse four, they tell us why. 
For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If you want to be known, Jesus' brothers tell him, if you want to be known, if you want to regain your following, then you need to get out of Galilee, get down to Judea, Jerusalem, where everybody can see you, where the the religious hub of the world is at. And if you want to regain your following, you need to get down there and do some things openly and in public. And, of course, uh, they go on to say in verse 4, If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. But then we see in verse 5 why they said these things. For neither did his brethren believe in him. That's an amazing statement. Jesus' own brothers, his younger brothers, who had grown up with him, they weren't sure that Jesus was Messiah. They weren't sure. They weren't confident of it. They were impressed by him. They were impressed with him, but that's not salvation. The people in chapter 6 who ate and saw the miracle that he did in feeding the multitudes were impressed by Jesus. They were amazed. People were amazed at what he could do. But it wasn't saving faith. There's a difference. There's a difference between acknowledging that Jesus existed and believing that Jesus is the Savior of your soul. There's a difference. Uh, Later on in in chapter 7, we studied last week in verse number 14, it says, now about the midst of the feast, and of course Jesus, we know, went to Jerusalem separately, went privately, quietly, so to speak. He gets there, and it says in verse 14, now about the midst of the feast, which would have been about day 4, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, and the Jews, the religious Jews of Jerusalem, marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? And that's kind of a a backhanded compliment right there. Okay? How how does this fellow know? How does this man have such understanding? How does this Galilean, this person who's never been to school, this uneducated, backward Galilean, that's what they're saying here, how is it that he has such knowledge? How is it that he has such understanding? How is it that he has such wisdom? They were impressed with his letters. And the word letters in the Greek is the word grammar. We get our English word grammar from it. And we've all been persecuted with that for most of our lives. Okay, But they were impressed with Jesus' wisdom. Okay, They were impressed with his understanding. Again, we find another, a third group of people. They're impressed with Jesus but they don't believe that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, that he is God come to save them from their sin. And that brings us to the passage I want to look at this morning. Look at verse number 25, and I'll read down through the end of the chapter. Look at verse 25. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, so some of the, not religious leaders, but some of the people from Jerusalem are saying, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. The religious leaders aren't doing anything unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? And some of the people in Jerusalem, they ask this question. You can see the confusion here. They say, isn't this the person, the man they're trying to kill? This is Jesus, right? The one they, they hate and they want to kill. He speaks boldly. And then they throw out a proposition. Maybe the rulers have come to the understanding that this is the Messiah. Okay, and they ask that as a question. You see in verse 26, verse 
27. Howbeit, we know, they continue, we know this man whence he is. We know who this man is. And they didn't believe, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Now that was a reference to Isaiah, his prophecy, but there was still confusion. Verse 28, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him. And he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him. But no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him, and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me. Where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will will he go, and that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this? And he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me. Whither I am, thither ye cannot come. The last days, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, This is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? They just couldn't grasp that. Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Did the scripture, let me ask for just a moment, did the scripture prophesy that Jesus would be born, that Christ would be born in Bethlehem? Yes or no? Yes. Was Christ born in Bethlehem? Yes or no? Did these people know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? No. See how shallow their understanding was of him? They're saying he's from Galilee. Was he from Galilee? Yes. Was he from Nazareth? Yes. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Yes. Their their understanding, their knowledge of him was so very shallow, but they, they were coming to conclusions about who he was and who he wasn't with very great ignorance, very dangerous. There are many of us here this morning who are born again, and there may be some in this room, and you are not born again. And so when you hear this congregation of people sing these songs with, with great gusto, it's kind of a marvel to you when you look around. You wonder how these people who look so normal believe these things. Or you, you hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, and maybe you hear me talk about him and preach about him, and You know that I believe that he is the Christ and he is the Savior of the world. He is God come in human flesh and raised from the dead, sitting on the right hand of the Father. And you might wonder in your mind, how would Pastor Ferguson, who seems to be normal, believe these things? Can I just encourage you? Don't come to a conclusion until you have heard all the facts. 
these people here completely missed their Messiah. They looked at him in the eyes. They, they heard his words. They heard God speak in human flesh. And they missed him. And they were religious people. In verse number 43, it says, So there, were, there was a division among the people because of, of him, because of Jesus. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have ye not brought him? We sent you to arrest him. It's just one man, this backward man from Galilee. And of course, the leaders of Israel hated him, and they say to their officers, the temple police, Why have you not arrested him? Why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. And answered them, the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? This people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus from chapter 3. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, being a Pharisee. Doth, he says this, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? And they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? And you can just hear the scorn in their voice. Search and look. For out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And that wasn't true either. Elijah, the greatest of all the prophets, came from not far away from Galilee. Jonah came from Galilee, just a stone's throw away from Nazareth. What's wrong with all the lies? What's the problem? These people hated Jesus. Two more verses and we'll pray. Look at verse 53. And every man went unto his own house this night. Look what happened with Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And we'll close with that at the end of the message this morning. I believe it was Matthew that talked about how foxes have dens. But Jesus, the Son of Man, hath nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, this morning as we look at your word. May you be glorified in our hearts. Father, help us to be sincere and genuine. Father, help us, I pray, in this world, not to be like the world, not to love the world. Father, not just in the outward expressions of life, but in our, in our homes, in our, in our thoughts. Father, you sent your son. You came and took on the form of a man to pay the price for our sin so that we could be forgiven of our sin and be saved from death and hell to come and live to glorify you. Father, I pray that you would help us to love our Savior and to live for him and to let him live his life through us. May it be so, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look, beginning in verse 30. Look with me there, if you would, in verse 30. And I want to notice, first of all, there's this danger that's surrounding Jesus. Now, I emphasized it last week, there, the turmoil that was around him. Um, I, I, we won't take time to go back, but last week we looked at probably half a dozen or more verses just in a couple of chapters in the Gospel according to John where the religious leaders are trying to kill him. 
They're waiting for him. They're searching for him. They're looking. They're, they want him dead. They hate. They hated Jesus with a passion. And they hated him because, not because he was a good man, not because he was a good teacher, not because he could do miracles. They hated Jesus because he opposed them. He opposed their self-righteousness. He opposed their their self-dependence. And they knew it. They knew it. They hated him. So there's this turmoil around Jesus. Remember in chapter 1, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Here he is, God in human flesh. He's speaking. He's preaching the word. He's healing people. He's doing good. He's loving people. He's preaching righteousness, and you either love him and receive his message, or you grow to hate him and despise him because he opposes you. And that's where these people were at. And so there's this looming danger around him. Look at verse number 30 in chapter 7. In verse 30 says this, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. And so they're seeking to take him, but it didn't happen. It doesn't happen here. He's only six months away from the cross, but it doesn't happen because it's not God's time. And I appreciated the song, again, because even when we seem to derail things in our lives, God's timetable is not flipped on its top. It's God's still able to maintain his timetable. He is in control. He's not out of control in any way. But we see these, these men, they hate him, they want to take him, but they can't do it because it's going to be another six months before God would allow them to have their way now look at verse number 31. There's a wonderful statement in verse 31. It says, And many of the people believed on him. That's a wonderful statement. Uh, what, what, what's the depth of their faith here? I don't know. They were believing on him. Many of the people were believing on him. So while there are some that are rejecting him and hating him, there are others that they're believing on him. And they say, notice what they say, When Christ cometh, when Messiah comes, when the anointed one of God comes, is what they're saying, Will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? In their, in, in their hearts, they're saying, I don't think so. What, 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 what's happening here in verse 31? They're inclined to believe that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. Well, that's wonderful, isn't it? What a wonderful statement. What a beautiful statement. And so there's this positive response. Then you see in verse 32... Their positive response to Jesus, the people who are starting to believe upon him, causes the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body, a political body of Israel, it causes them, it prompts them to act. Verse 32, look there. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. They hear that the people begin to say, this man may be the Messiah. The Messiah is not going to do more or greater works than this man, Jesus, is doing. And so the Pharisees hear these things, these murmurings of the people. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Now, the officers there were the temple police. And there was quite a group uh, of temple police. It was not a small small group. Large group, well-trained, would have worked uh, in conjunction with the Romans government sometimes. They were specifically, they had jurisdiction, even within the Roman government, they had jurisdiction of the temple, and the the jurisdiction around the temple as well. They were a powerful group. 
uh, the leader of the temple police, these officers, would have been the second most powerful man really in Israel outside of the, of the high priest. Okay. And the temple police would have been Levites as well. And so the Pharisees, and you see it in verse 32, the Pharisees and, what does it say, the chief priests? All Levites, that is the chief priests would have been Levites, but the Pharisees and the chief priests, they joined together in opposing their enemy, which would have been Jesus. Now the chief priests were drawn from the ranks of the most wealthy and influential priestly families in all of Israel. Very political group, the chief priests. And it was out of that group of, of priests, the chief priests, that the high priest was chosen. The, the high priests, uh, or the chief priests, were the backbone of the Sadducees, the aristocratic party in the Sanhedrin. Very political. Men like Annas, or Eleazar, or Caiaphas were prominent members of this very elite group of people. And I, we've already at different times in our study of John even, we've talked about how, remember when Jesus cleaned out the temple? Um, I told you that Caiaphas would have been making quite a bit of money off of sales of animals and things like that. So they had turned what God had intended for good, they had turned it for their own political, powerful, um, monetary gain. And that, that, that was these men. They were uh, a a party. Uh, they were powerful men. So normally the Pharisees, though, were at odds with the Sadducees. The Pharisees were at odds with the chief priests. But to oppose Jesus, they joined together. Both of the parties feel they felt uh, threatened by Jesus. And they, frankly, they didn't want him. Think about that now. He came unto his own, his own received him not. the supposed religious people, the most religious people in Israel, didn't want their Messiah. You know, it's a question that every one of us ought to ask ourselves, and many of us here are born again. He's the, he is the Savior of our, our eternal soul, and we say that we love him, but do we want him? Of course, Jesus tells us that if we love him, keep, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obey me. You love me. Obey me when it doesn't make sense to you. Obey me when you don't feel like it. And there are all times when you and I don't feel like obeying him and doing his will. Now, we are born again, many of us in this room. His, the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ lives within us, and he prompts us. He convicts us of sin. He guides us. He says to us, this is the way. Walk ye in it. We have his word to direct us. And it goes in opposition many times to this world in which we live. His word uh, is always in opposition to our ungodly flesh, which wants to disobey it and go the other way. But we can talk about these, these religious leaders, these Jewish men of Israel, and we can uh, wrinkle our, our foreheads and we can uh, think of, and, you know, what were they thinking? How arrogant must these men have been? They hated Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They were offended by Jesus. But then I asked myself the question, have I ever been offended by him? Have you? Has he ever offended you? When we're 
bent on doing and and persisting in our own way? Has he ever offended us? What, What will you do with him? What are you doing with him? What am I doing with him? With his words of instruction and conviction. So these men who hate Jesus and they don't want the Messiah, they wouldn't have minded him if he would have played a game with them. Do you understand that? If he had been political with them, they would have welcomed him with open arms. But he wasn't political. He was honest. He was true. And so these men who hate Jesus, they send officers to take him. And these officers that they send to arrest Jesus are the members of the temple police. They're responsible for maintaining the law and order within the precincts of the temple. They're Levites, as I've told you already. Their commanding officer, the captain of the temple, again, is the second most powerful man really in Israel outside of the high priest. We don't know exactly when the temple police arrive, but Jesus doesn't seem to be disturbed by their coming. We know later on that they hear what he says and they're impressed by what he says to the point where they won't even attempt to arrest him because they say no man that we have ever heard speak speaks like this man. This man does not speak like a man. He speaks with authority that we've never heard before. Well, who are they hearing talk? They were hearing God talk. And these men who had all power, and I don't think we're scared of anybody in Israel were afraid of him. They were afraid of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not sure how much they heard Jesus say, but what they did hear, they were amazed by. Look at verse number 33. Jesus talks about how long he's going to be on earth uh, still. And of course, he only had six months to go or so. Not long. In verse 33, then said Jesus unto them, yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. He's talking about his Father, God the Father. Jesus knew what that his time on earth was short, just six months. Jesus knew because he was God, because he was all-knowing, he knows all things, and he still knows all things to this day. But also Jesus knew because of the prophecy of Scripture. And we're not going to take any time really to get into the prophecy of Scripture, but Jesus, because of the Word of God, would have known basically the exact date of his crucifixion. And so He speaks to the people in verse 33 about the brevity of time he has left. He's not going to be here long, is what he says. And he talks about his departure. Look at verse 34. He says, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. You're going to seek me. There's going to come a day when you're going to seek for me, Jesus says to these religious people. You're not seeking for me now. But there's going to come a time when you you do seek for me, but you will not find me. And where I'm going, you will not be able to come. That's a fearful statement right there. I think sometimes we have in our minds the idea that, you know what, the convicting work of the Spirit of God in our lives will always be there. We can always count on it. We can say no and no and no and no and no and no and no again. You know, he'll just always be there. He'll be all right. I think sometimes people who are unsaved have the attitude of, you know what, I'll consider Jesus someday, but not right now, because I want to live my life for me right now. And uh, someday, someday I may believe upon him. Someday I may put my trust in him. And Jesus, as he speaks to these, he says, ye shall seek me. There's coming a day when you will seek me. 
You will not find me, and where I am, ye cannot come. You, you, you won't be able to come because you're, gonna, you're missing your opportunity. Jesus was going back to his Father in heaven. And think with me here, it was difficult for these people to find him when he was standing in front of them. They couldn't recognize him while he was standing in front of them, while they were hearing his voice. I wonder what his voice sounded like. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing to hear him speak? I wonder if the chairs would get uncomfortable. I wonder if our bottoms would hurt. Or maybe our stomachs would growl. I don't know. But these people couldn't find him when he was standing right there in front of them, talking to them. It was going to be impossible for them to find him after he had ascended to be with his father. Can I just say this? Take the opportunity that God gives you to receive truth. I know, I know we're busy. I know, I know we all have more stuff than we need. I know we've got a busy, weeks, a busy week ahead of us this week, and there's pleasurable things that are going to take place, and there are going to be some hard things that take place, and we've got responsibilities to take care of, and I know we don't have a lot of time. I know we don't have a lot of time for Jesus Christ. I know that. Can I just encourage you as your pastor to listen to him when he speaks? Receive the word of God as he gives it to you. When his spirit within you squeezes your heart and convicts you of sin, would you, would you please respond to him? Just obey him. Just submit to him. There's no one else in this world who loves you like he loves you. There's no one else in this world who you can trust the way you can trust him. He will never leave, lead you astray. He has your best in mind. He knows his plan for your life. And when he speaks to you, Please listen to him. There is no better way. There is no other option. You remember what the Apostle Peter said? Where else shall we go? There's no place else to go. There's nowhere else that I can go where I can be, where I can be fed. There's nowhere else I can go to, to know the truth, to know how I ought to live, to have the power, to obtain the power to live the life that you've saved me to live. There's nowhere else to go but the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice here the Jews misunderstand what Jesus is telling them. In verse 34, he's telling them where he's going. He's going back to be with his father. He tells them in verse 33, he's not going to be here long. And notice the, the religious people around him misunderstand him. Look at verse 35. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go that we shall not find him? Where, where can he possibly go that we can't find him? Will he go into the dispersed Jews? Among the Gentiles? Is he going to leave Israel and go to other parts of the world where Jews are at among the Gentiles? Is he going to teach the Gentiles? You see what they ask at the end of verse number 35? <laughs> Is he going to teach the Gentiles? And there's this disdain. He wouldn't do that, would he? Verse 36. What manner of saying is this, that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, ye cannot come. What's he talking about? And there's this misunderstanding. Now, just remember for a moment that Jesus hadn't been crucified yet. The New Testament, as we have it today, was not in print, okay? Hadn't been penned down yet, recorded for us, given to us. They didn't have it. They had the Old Testament, and had they known it, had they known it and been receptive to the Old Testament, they would have known Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They had, all, they had everything that they needed. 
But I think maybe like we, they're looking truth in the face, but their, their vision is clouded by all the cares of this life. Their vision is clouded. They can't see him clearly because they're so in love with themselves and what they do and how they live and how they worship. And, and this one that they're seeing is not fitting in to what they do. But that's not who Jesus is. You see, most of us, we order our lives, we set up our schedules, and we fit in to our life schedules what fits in And what doesn't fit in, we don't include, right? It's just that simple. We're going this direction with our family, and whatever fits in, we'll include it. But if it doesn't fit in, if it doesn't fit into our thinking, we have no room for it. That's not, that may work for ball games. That that may work for the dentist appointment, you know? I love when they call me, and I have something else going on. And you know what? The dentist, they're the low man on the totem pole. You know what? I, I got a conflict. You'll have to call back. That's probably not the best thing, right? But I love it when I have a conflict with the dentist. But you know what? Some of us love it when we have a conflict with Jesus. Sorry, Lord, we don't have room for that. Sorry, Lord, your teaching doesn't fit into my philosophy of life. Sorry, Lord, what you say doesn't fit into what I'm dealing with or my entertainment. It, it doesn't, just doesn't fit in. It's a big mistake. Look at, look at verse 37 as we move along. And, and notice this last day of the feast. Verse 37 says this. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. Now, we're going to talk about that. It doesn't say that he wept. He's not weeping. But he is speaking incredibly passionately. Okay? I'm trying to emphasize that. Saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? Verse 39 kind of explains it for us. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. He hadn't been crucified, he hadn't died. He hadn't been raised from the dead and ascended to be with the Father, okay? But he talks here about the last day of the feast in verse number 37. It says this last day. Now, remember, as I told you last week, the feast of the tabernacles was a time of celebrating God's guidance. And and it was a time of celebration, eight days of celebrating God's provision for the nation of Israel. And it really directed Israel's attention back to when Israel had been wandering through the wilderness and it also directed Israel's attention forward to uh, the promised kingdom of Messiah. And the Feast of the Tabernacles lasted for seven days, plus one, the, the last day, would have been the great day. And the Jews would live during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would all make their way to Jerusalem, many of them would, and they would live in these makeshift tents or tabernacles, booths, made from branches to remind them of God's care and provision for them for 40 years while they wandered through the wilderness. The Feast of Tabernacles was a a time, it was a festival, it was a time of of being together and family and community for the Jewish people. And the temple at this time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would illuminate by candlesticks and it would remind the people 
uh, of Israel, of God guiding the people of Israel years and years prior by night with a pillar of fire. Early in the morning on each of the first seven days of the feast, the priests would draw water from the pool of Siloam, and they had made it a formal procession, okay? And they would use these golden vessels, and they would go to the pool of Siloam, and they would dip those golden vessels in the pool of Siloam, and they would parade those vessels with the water back to the altar, and on the, uh, I think it's the west side of the altar, they would pour out that water. And the temple choir would begin to sing what we have recorded for us in Psalm 113 through 118, which are the Hallel Psalms. They would sing about God's provision. And the pouring out of the water reminded the people of Israel of how God had provided water from a rock. You remember that? Moses struck the rock, and out of a rock came water that nourished all of Israel, more than a million people and all of their animals. And the rock, of course, was a picture of Christ. But it was also a symbol, a symbol of, of God giving rain and blessing the crops uh, of that year. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was a, a jubilant time for the people as they thanked God for sending the rain that allowed for their bountiful harvest. It was a time of rejoicing, as I, what I want you to know. But here we have, in verse 37, the last day. The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles was was very, very special. It was, it's called for us in Leviticus an unholy convocation. And in Numbers, it's called a solemn assembly. And the pouring out of water seems to have been, be, have been omitted by this time. And on the eighth day, they wouldn't pour out the water. They wouldn't go to the Pool of Siloam. They wouldn't parade it back in golden vessels. They wouldn't pour it out. It was absent, interestingly, on the eighth day. And it was on the last day when there was no pouring out of water from the Pool of Siloam on the altar that Jesus stood, it says in verse 37, and cried. In the omission of water, Jesus speaks very passionately about living water. What they need. What, what the Feast of, of Tabernacles points them to, the Messiah. God's provision for them. Not just looking back for 40 years of wandering through the wilderness but the salvation of their souls, the forgiveness of sin. Living water. Water that satisfies, not just for a moment, not just for a couple of hours, only to to need to drink again, but living water given once that will always sustain, that will always satisfy. The only thing that can always satisfy Sometimes Cindy and I will talk about different things, and I don't know if I'm a visionary or not, but I always have a to-do list or things that I want to get accomplished or things that I want. And on one occasion she said, if you had that, it wouldn't satisfy you. She knows me too well, doesn't she? Some of you are poking your husband's. So you can poke your wives, right? We're all like that to a degree. You could have a brand new house, and eventually it won't satisfy you. You could have a brand new car. Name it. You go get it, and after a while, it won't satisfy you anymore. You know, let's say we have good health, and some of us do and some of us don't in this room. Let's say you have good health. 
and you, and you do, you have wonderful health, are you, are you wholly satisfied just because you have good health? Or do you find that in the depth of your soul there's a longing and a thirsting? I'll call it, yeah, I'll go beyond that, I'll call it covetousness. It, it just, it burns and it wears away at you and you're continually longing and desiring and can't, you can't ever be satisfied. And Jesus, as he speaks to these, he stands, it says in verse 27, and he cried. Now we've come across this word cried before. Look over to verse number 28. Verse 28. It says there, then cried, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me. You do know me, is what he's saying. And ye know whence I am. You know where I've come from. I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. And he's answering their, their declaration. We don't know where you're from. Or, or, or what they're saying is, we do know where you're from. And, the, and the Psalm 53 says, we're not going to, or Isaiah 53 says, we are not going to know where you're from. The Messiah, we're not supposed to know where he's from. And there was a very popular teaching at that particular time. And they're saying in, in verse 27, we know where this man cometh. We don't know where Christ is going to come from. And Jesus is saying, no, he disagrees with him. He says, no, I, you do know where I'm from. And the verb cried tells us that Jesus spoke with strong emotion, and that's an understatement. In both cases, Jesus speaks with a great outburst. He cried out. In verse 28, Jesus cried out in protest of their denial of him. But here in verse 37, the beginning part, Jesus cried out with an invitation. An invitation. Look again at verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, it's true, sometimes people just aren't thirsty. There are several of you in this room, and I just heard a testimony yesterday of a dear lady in our church who talked about how God had brought some things into her life that just before she was presenting with the gospel, and as a result of the trial, the heartache that was brought into her life, my words, she was ready to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a good friend I have within this congregation. He has talked to me about if he, he had not lost so much that he would not have been ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. He would not have been ready, and I'll say it this way, he would have not have been ready to drink. He didn't, have a, he didn't have a thirst. He thought, as many of us, as all of us thought at one time in our lives, that he, we, we, we thought that our thirsts were being satisfied. We thought that eating the husks from the pig slop was satisfying. We thought we were good. But every one of us who are truly born again, there had to come a time in our lives where we realized that all the stuff that we had and the busyness of life and the, the self-confidence, it just wasn't enough. We were missing something. And Jesus says here to them, he says, if you thirst, come unto me. Come unto me and drink. And Jesus cries out with this invitation. And make no mistake, Jesus cried out with great emotion. Look at verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus wasn't referring to any one particular or single passage of Scripture, but he was referring to a general theme of the entire Old Testament. 
Isaiah 12 and verse 3 says, Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. In Isaiah 55 and verse 1, he says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. In Isaiah 58 and verse 11, it says, And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. In Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Again in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 8, the beginning part, it says, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. That's prophetic. Just as Israel in the Old Testament drank from that life-giving stream flowing from the rock, so Christ offers those who believe in Him an ever-flowing, a never-failing, a soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching inner supply of living water. He doesn't leave it to our imagination to ask, what kind of water is this? Or, who is the water? Jesus says, come to me and drink. I'm the only one who can satisfy you. And he tells us in the very next verse, I'm talking to you about the Holy Spirit. And I want to tell you something. This week, this is something I had never seen before in my life. I've wondered at times... Okay, when I was a five-year-old boy in 1984, I believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved my soul, and I can remember the peace. I can remember the joy, and I, can, and I have known that peace and joy at times throughout my life, and there have been other times where I've walked away from the Lord and disobeyed Him. Not lost my salvation, but disobeyed Him, where I've lost that peace and lost that joy. I, I tell you on a regular basis, say yes to the Holy Spirit. Say yes to him. I'm amazed sometimes as a pastor as I interact with many of you through hard times in your lives at the peace and the joy that you have going through very, very difficult situations. And sometimes as a pastor, even with my knowledge of the word of God, I'll, I'll walk away from your door or from that hospital bed and I'll walk away and I'll find myself literally shaking my head from side to side, marveling at the peace and the joy, and the contentment that a person can have in such a state as that. You know why? Wherever I find the peace and the joy and the contentment in your lives and in mine, you know why? It's because we're saying yes to the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry to put it so simply as that, but that is what it is. And in our lives, in your lives and in mine, when we are so angry, and so frustrated. And, and those are great words to use to describe it. Where we just can't get enough of what we think we need. It's because we're not saying yes to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I'm not saying that there are, not, there, there are times of grief in a person's life. Okay, do not misunderstand me. But even in a time of grief, there can be peace. Even in a time of loss, there can be, there can be peace. And you know what? The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit of Christ never leaves us nor forsakes us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. The problem is not with Him. He is our inheritance, by the way. He, Jesus, 
by His Spirit is our salvation. And he never leaves us nor forsakes us. You know, as a parent, that brings great comfort to me because I have four children and all four of them have professed to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting that their profession is true. They have the Spirit of God living within them. They have something that I can never do for them. The Spirit of God living within them, going wherever they go, convicting them, encouraging them, comforting them. As parents, do you ever find that you can't comfort the one you love, your children, or maybe as a spouse, you can't comfort your spouse? You know that the Spirit of God is there to do that? You ever, ever, ever as a parent, you ever wish you could go everywhere with your kids? I don't think I want, I want that, but, but do you ever wish you could be there? You know there's coming a point where they're going, they're, they're, they're out of your jurisdiction. They're making choices. And you know they're lacking some wisdom in making choices. But you know what? If, you, if your children are born again, and you've taught them to say yes to the Spirit of God, they're in great hands. They're in better hands than they would be if they were in our hands. You see, he is the never-failing, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching supply of living water. Do you remember the woman at the well in Samaria? Christ himself was the well of living water that never would run dry. Drink of me. And you remember the, the, the verbiage there was drink and keep drinking. Don't stop drinking. And that's where we get into trouble. We stop drinking. We stop saying yes to him. Jesus was the well that could meet her every need. To the masses of Jews in Jerusalem on this day, Jesus identifies the Holy Spirit as the rivers of living water. Look at verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So just as Moses smote the rock, so it was that our Lord was smitten. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and he went home to be with his Father on high. But when he did, the Bible tells us that he sent the Comforter, his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the Bible tells us that rivers began to flow. The church was born. Thousands were saved, and that ever-flowing river still flows to this day. Everyone that is saved by Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who is abundantly able to fill us and to meet our needs and to be poured out as a blessing to those around us. I think it was in the 90s when my parents, we took a family vacation to New York, went to Niagara Falls. Last year in 2018, I was able to take my family there. And I had dropped Cindy off ahead she was looking for a parking spot, I think, and I had to loop back around and ended up parking a little further out than I wanted to, and I had some of the children with me, I think a couple of them, maybe more. We were walking. If we parked the van, we're, now we're meeting up with the other half of the Ferguson clan, you know, vacation. And uh, we were walking alongside the Niagara River, and the closer we got to the falls, the more intense the water became, the more powerful it was. And I loved to swim. I looked at that water, and I knew... There's no way, there's no doubt in my mind, if I were in that water, there's nothing I could do. It was intense, it was powerful. And the water, of course, it flows from one of the Great Lakes down into the Niagara River, intensifies over the falls, and then on into the other Great Lake. You know, I'm still amazed, I think, at the sight of that river pounding 
pouring its thundering waters over the rim of the falls and down into the gorge beneath. It's been doing it for thousands of years. The power of the water is immense, and you have to yell to be heard over its roar. It literally is so powerful it wears rock away. Take your breath away. It it produces power, and it knows no end. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. And what were a few jars of water poured out upon the altar, what were just a few jars of water during the Feast of Tabernacles poured out on the altar in the temple compared to the mighty flow of the Niagara River cascading over the falls? They're nothing. And what was Judaism and its ceremonies compared to Jesus and his spirit? What is... What is a list of rules compared to Jesus and his spirit? What is man's religion compared to Jesus and his spirit? And so Jesus stands here, and he cries out. And there are all these people, the people he's come to save, the people he's going to die for. And he cries out, and he says, come unto me. Drink of me. And for us who now have the spirit of God, the the emphasis would be keep drinking of me. You have everything that you need. The people are divided over Jesus' words. Look at verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Some believed to a degree. Others said, this is the Christ. This is Messiah. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? No, they're so shallow in their understanding. He is out of Galilee, but he was born in Bethlehem. Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David? He was of the seed of David. And out of the town of Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem, where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, that is, arrested him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have ye not brought him? What is the problem? The temple police and the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. They were overwhelmed by his authority. Verse 47, Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Are you believing him too? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? This people who knoweth not the law are cursed. These people are believing upon him because they're so ignorant. Verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night being one of them. And I don't... I don't know if this was the first time he'd ever spoken up, but it's the first recorded time. Nicodemus says, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? He basically says to the the priests and and the leaders of uh, of the Sanhedrin, he says, You guys are planning to kill him. You haven't even interviewed him yet. You haven't you haven't even heard his side of things yet. In other words, Nicodemus says, You're wrong. You can't just kill a man. It goes against their own law. Verse 52, they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? They meant that as a slight. Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And I told you at the beginning, that's not true. Elijah was from Gilead. Jonah was from near Nazareth. Verse 53, and we'll close here. Every man went into his own house. Everyone went home. The Pharisees went home. Soldiers, temple police, they went home. The high priest went home. The people went home. Nicodemus went home. I imagine that night fires were kindled in their homes. People would have washed for dinner. Meals were served. Maybe people played with their children. They would have reclined in comfort. 
grown tired, yawned, snuffed out their candles, and went to bed. And verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Jesus went under the Mount of Olives. Nicodemus, why didn't you invite him? Some believed, some didn't. But no one invited him. Matthew 8, 20 says, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And we're going to close with a hymn. And the hymn is, What Will You Do With Jesus? What are you doing with him? You know, we can read about this. And I've got to tell you, it really, it really yanks at my heart. It squeezes my heart as I read about this and study. I've studied this. I've never in my life really studied this out the way I'm studying it out to preach it to you. You know, I've, I've, all my life I've heard about Jesus being crucified. I've heard about his suffering. I've heard about his death on an old rugged cross for the salvation of my soul. But I've never, I've never pondered him, his life, his ministry, being rejected and hated and despised. I've never pondered it the way I'm pondering it. And after he stands here and he says, come unto me and drink living water. Some believe. They all go home. And he's left. We're all going to go home. But you know he goes with you by his spirit living within you. Tomorrow he'll go with you. He'll never fail you. He'll never leave you. never forsake you. He'll, he's not going to leave me either. And this week I will have a choice. Will I yield to him? Will I listen to him? Will I honor him? Will I love him? Or I will, will I say something of the, hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for meeting with me on Sunday. Thanks for, I know you're always there, but I've got it. I'll take it from here. That's not loyalty. That's not love. And that's not honor. And that's not the kind of man that I want to be. Let's all take our hymnals.